Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Our speaker for today in the Baptist pulpit is Evangelist Paul Schwenke. Pray that his message will be a blessing to you. He is an evangelist from Arizona. He's been preaching revival meetings in churches since 1982, so he's been at it for quite some time. And he's known for his scripturally-based messages. He has a lot of practical application when he preached. He was saved as a young boy in a Christian home, and... He's preached in most states across the nation and numerous foreign countries. He's authored a number of books, and you can find those at PreachTheBible.com. That's PreachTheBible.com. But I pray that you enjoy the message by evangelist Paul Schwenke today. Thank you so much, ladies. Let me invite you to take your Bible tonight and turn to Psalm 51, the 51st Psalm. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. What a great day to be with God's people at Fairhaven Baptist Church. Thank you for your faithfulness to Christ and and your desire and heart for the Word of God and the God of the Word. Uh, just been so encouraged and blessed today by the wonderful music and thank you so much for your effort and your labor uh, all day long again tonight with the specials and the orchestra and the choir uh, it's just wonderful to hear our Savior magnified and the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up you know sometimes we are very dismissive with the word talent we watch somebody do a great job on an instrument or we hear someone sing a beautiful solo or duet and and uh, it's awfully easy just to dismiss that and say, well, I guess they've got great talent. And, and I really don't like that word because it almost gives you the idea of somebody's walking down the street and all of a sudden this lightning bolt flashes out of heaven and lands on somebody's fingers and get out of the way and let me play the piano. Or you would be stunned how much talent you had and I had if we did something an hour a day, six days a week for the next 10 years. What we call talent is really good old-fashioned hard work. And, and one thing I've learned in one day at Fairhaven Baptist Church is there are people here that are very serious about music that honors and exalts the Lord, and they labor at it all day long today. They work and they labor. They're here early and they practice, and, and uh, there's a lot of effort. And if it's for the Lord, it ought to be done right. Uh, there's nothing sloppy about honoring our Savior. There's no glory in that. He is worth our best, our best work, our best labor, our best preparation. And, and uh, it is so evident in the music program at Fairhaven Baptist Church. Because, you know, I could say, well, I like it and I enjoy the music. And i be honest with you, I do. But that's not the key. 
It is not what do I like or what do you like, what honors and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we humans are, well, like John said it so well, he must increase and I must decrease. When we decrease and our Savior increases, that's a job well done. And my, to see Jesus and hear him exalted, that's just been special all day. And I'm grateful for your labor that goes behind that because that says there's a church of people that love the Lord and want to honor him. Thank you so much. My Christ is honored. What, what else needs to be said? You have your Bible tonight to the 51st Psalm, Psalm 51. What a powerful, powerful portion of God's Word. If you're able physically tonight, might I invite you to stand together with me as we go to Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. My Savior, I pray as we open your words tonight, that our hearts would be still and quiet before you. Or to all the activity and all the busyness of the day may, may just be laid aside now as we stop before heaven in the mighty words of our God. I pray if someone in this building has never repented and returned to the Lord Jesus and trusted him as their savior, that tonight would be the night they're born into your family. And I pray for your people, Lord, that, that you indeed might find the people ready for revival, that you would break up the fallow ground and you would stir us for our sins. Lord, I ask you tonight to do a mighty work in this place as we commit the preaching to you in the great name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. It was one year earlier when the Bible tells us the kings went forth to battle. And of course, David would make a series of errors and choices that, that would bring great havoc and great ruin. And the first was when he sent Captain Joab off to fight a battle where the Bible tells us in First Chronicles it was David's responsibility to go. Captain Joab leads the soldiers away. And, and what happens next in the word of God to me, it is one of the most frightening phrases in all the Bible. It just seems so commonplace and it just seems so ordinary. And, and yet it ought to frighten and scare every single one of us tonight. For what happens next goes like this. The Bible says, and it came to pass at an evening tide. You get the idea it was like any other ordinary afternoon. I perhaps David had done this a thousand times before. The king's house, the king's palace, why the rooftop would be the highest spot in Jerusalem. And maybe David would go up there frequently. And, and why in a hot summer day you could feel the breezes coming from the Mediterranean as the afternoon settles in the evening. I perhaps David, for all we know, even went up there to pray. To pray for his city and to pray for his kingdom and to pray to the God that he loves. And it's what makes it so incredibly frightening. I mean, it's not like David got out of bed that morning and thought to himself, you know, this would be a day, a good day, to do something so colossally stupid that in 3,000 years they're still talking about it. I mean, it's not like there were sirens sounding like a tornado hitting the Midwest. It is not like there's any warning. It's not that there's lights flashing in the sky. You know, there's absolutely nothing to indicate that this day or particularly this evening is like any other day or any other evening. And it's so frightening, is it not, that it just... 
came to pass at an evening tide. And the warning for you and for me ought to be that by this time tomorrow night, any one of us in this room can ruin the rest of our lives. Just one evening tide. And you know the story. David goes to the rooftop and little did he imagine as he was climbing those steps what was going to happen next. For you understand, David at age 35 became king in Israel. For 20 years, David showed us precisely how the king of Israel ought to behave. Of godliness and love for the Lord, writing song after song. I, David's testimony is impeccable. For 20 years, he shows us exactly how the king of Israel should behave. And yet in that one evening tide, David will be so disgraced that though God will put away his sin and forgive him, David's still going to reap the consequences for the rest of his life. Twenty long years. Every single day, David will never forget what he's going to do. So he climbs the rooftop, and in another roof not too far away, there is Bathsheba bathing. You know, I've heard more than one preacher give Bathsheba a pass, but the Bible does not. Now, I understand that David is about to become an adulterer, but it is also true that Bathsheba is about to become an adulteress. And it is true that David is about to engage in a horrific sin, but it is also true that Bathsheba is going to be equal in that sin as well. And I've heard people excuse Bathsheba and go so far as to say, well, in those days a woman didn't say no to the king. Excuse me, but we have in the word of God the story of a woman who did say no to the king. Her name was Queen Vashti. And though it is true that she was ridiculed and she paid a tremendous price, well, people who do righteousness always pay a tremendous price. Now the Bible tells us that David sees Bathsheba. Then you have to wonder why she wasn't more careful and you know the story. The next thing you know, the serpents have gone to get Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba engage in horrific sin. And now David will never undo what he has done. The Bible tells us the word comes from Bathsheba to David that she is, can I please get the term from the Bible correct tonight? She is with child. Excuse me, but if there ever was an unwanted pregnancy, this was it. But do you know in even this case, the Bible says she was with child. I believe the correct number is 26 times in the Bible, a woman is said to be with child. Interesting, the word pregnant is never found in the real Bible. Not only is the word pregnant not found, the word fetus is not found. No, the Bible tells us wanted or not, the little child that was inside Bathsheba was in the eyes of Almighty God, a child. And so now David's got a disaster on his hands. What is King David going to do now? You know, as king in Israel, you certainly got a lot of options on the table. Well, the first thing he does is call for the husband, Uriah. He returns from the battlefield. And and can you imagine the phoniness? Can you imagine the hypocrisy? Uh, I wonder if David didn't meet Uriah and say, you know, Uriah, you're such a faithful man. You know, Uriah, you're such a, a great soldier. You served me so well. I thought we'd give you a weekend's leave. Go enjoy it with your wife. What a phony David is. 
And of course, Uriah was kind of like a whoop puppy that keeps coming back to his owner. Uriah said, well, I'm going to guard the palace of the king. If I can't be with my brothers on a distant battlefield, if I can't be marching on the city of Amman, what we would call Amman, Jordan, and fighting a battle, well, then fine, I'll just defend the palace of my king. Hey, David was so desperate that he tried to get him drunk. Still, he wouldn't go to the to his own wife. And finally, David said, what else can I do? Uh, so he calls Uriah in. And you know, I, I wonder if he put the secret plans in a briefcase, you know. And I wonder if he didn't just tie it to his wrist. And you get the idea that when he tells Uriah, you're carrying top secret plans, that Uriah would have died to defend those plans. Little did he know. Those top secret plans called for his death. Pretty soon, Captain Joab is fighting a battle they have no business fighting. He's already given orders to the rest of the soldiers. We're going to attack the city with no chance of winning. Then we're going to retreat. Everybody but Uriah will retreat. And, and when the command is given, the soldiers go back. Uriah has no chance. But you know, if you read the story carefully, it wasn't just Uriah had died. The Bible says other soldiers died. The word of God uses the word some. So it wasn't just one military funeral. All across the land of Israel, there were wives burying their husbands or mothers that were burying their sons. And and it wasn't just one, it was some. And now the tragedy is starting to spread, isn't it? Because it all started with David committing a horrific sin of adultery. But now he's gone a long way past adultery. David's not just an adulterer, David is a murderer. And it's the funny thing, isn't it? Because in the Old Testament, in the law of God, adultery and murder, why, they were both capital offenses. Well, by according to the word of God, should David had been slain for his crimes. But you know, it's the funny thing, isn't it? Kings in Israel, kind of like politicians around our world, don't seem to have the rules apply to them. And now David has got a military funeral. Can you see the flag draped coffin? Can you see the tears? I wonder if David didn't give a eulogy. I suspect he did. And I can imagine David standing up in front of the crowd and comforting the family of Uriah and comforting the nation. And I wonder how many flowery words he had. I wonder what a great speech that he gave, telling everybody what a hero, what a great man Uriah was. And every word that comes out of his mouth is loaded with phoniness. David is a murderer. And so a year goes by. That must have been quite the year, don't you think? There are, of course, 150 psalms. Of our 150 psalms, somewhere between 74 to 87 were penned by the hand of David. But of those songs that God gave to David, the songs that God gave to David to write, there are 14 of them, one of which is Psalm 51, where we don't have to guess and we don't have to wonder where this fits into David's life. The Bible clearly tells us. But you know, if you make a broader picture of the Psalms of David and and you put them in the timeline of David's life, it would seem the earliest Psalms that he wrote were not as a shepherd boy, but after David was anointed to be the king. It seems that the last songs David wrote were at the very end of his life, after the sordid story with Absalom. I mean, there are Psalms in every corner, it seems, of David's life. They seem to fit so many different places and And yet the fascinating thing is that for that one long year where David is not right with God, 
There are no Psalms. Of course there aren't. The holy, pure God of heaven is not going to give his perfect, inspired words. He's not going to give them to a man who is hiding his sins. I wonder what it must have been like come the weekend. I wonder how many times, well, we call him the choir director. In the Bible, he's called the chief musician. I wonder how many times he didn't come and smile and say, You know, King David, it's been a while since we had any new material. You know, King David, we're kind of singing some reruns here. And and boy, David, you know, it used to be like clockwork and, and there was always a song. I mean, you've had some wonderful music you hear here. We've heard today, but, but I got to tell you, when God's writing the words, that's something on a different level. And I wonder how many times the choir director didn't smile and say, been a little busy, huh? And you can imagine one more time the phony hypocrisy of David as he comes up with some flimsy excuse. The truth is he had no song because God would not give him one. Now, a year's gone by. And David's got to be thinking, I got away with this. Oh, there would be people who always knew, of course. There was a servant that had to go get Bathsheba. There was somebody who had to bring the report of a woman with child. There, of course, is Captain Joab. And I, I kind of get the idea, and I can't prove it, but he kind of seems to hold that over David the rest of his life. And, and, and you know, there's just a lot of things. There's some people that knew, but, but it seems like David do what politicians know to do. He, he seems to have contained all the problem. And, and you know, a year later... David's probably looking like the good guy. I mean, do you know how it must have looked to people living in the city? I mean, to them, looking from the outside in, they're thinking, well, you know, Uriah was slain in the battle. And, and then when Uriah died, that David is so compassionate. And David is so loving. And David is so kind and merciful that he actually married Bathsheba and brought that foreign woman into the palace. And then you can almost hear them say a week or two or three later, well, Bathsheba's with child. Our, our King David is so good. God is blessing him. And a year later, Not only has David got it all covered up, David looks like the good guy. But there's that little thing in the Bible, isn't there? The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so one day here he comes... The Bible tells us his name is Nathan the prophet. I gotta tell you, that must have been a moment in time. You know, I don't know how this works, but I've often wondered in heaven, do you think there might be a library? And perhaps in that library, do you think there might be a photo gallery? Wouldn't there be some great, great pictures? I mean, wouldn't you love to have seen a close-up on Haman's face when it all came down for him? Uh, wouldn't you love to see? Uh, There's just some pictures that would make fabulous pictures. And, and I don't know, just for whatever the reason, I would just love to see the look on David's face when Nathan the prophet showed up. Because he could always take care of Joab, and he certainly could always rule with a right iron and all the workers in the palace. But you see, Joab was, or I'm sorry, Nathan was a man we really don't understand too well in America. He was a preacher that you couldn't buy. And so Nathan walks in, and I can just imagine that look on David's face. 
And Nathan approaches the throne of David, and and you can imagine the scenario because Nathan has a story to tell. Well, Nathan begins, and David, there's a man in your kingdom, an incredibly wealthy man with more riches and flocks and wealth you could imagine. And and there's this little poor man down the street who's got nothing. They got nothing except for this little ewe lamb. And they love that lamb, and they treat that lamb like a pet. It's all the guy has. And when the visitor was coming to see Mr. Wealthy Man. He wouldn't take one of his flocks. But he went and he took that little ewe lamb and killed it and dressed it for dinner. And would you just love to see David? His face turns as beet red as his hair. And David rises up with the steam pouring out of his ears. And and you can hear David say, The man that had done this thing shall surely die. My friend, Brother Gilmore, was here this morning, and he, I have heard him say at times, puts it like this. He didn't know his throat was slit till he went to spit. I just like that. (laughs) I didn't say it. Brother Gilmore said it. What can I tell you? The man that hath done this thing shall die. And here it comes. With backbone and courage and all, oh, would America be different with some preachers like Nathan? Nathan the prophet looks square in the eyeballs of David the king. And he preaches one of the shortest yet one of the most powerful messages ever heard. Thou art the man. Can you imagine the stunned silence? I mean the guards they just must have been in state of shock. Can you imagine the news media is everywhere and, and they're just, what do we just hear? You know, David's attendance and all the people that fill the palace on a daily basis. I, I mean, it must have been, as they said, so quiet you could hear a pin drop. Everyone is in stunned silence. What in the world is Nathan talking about? And as Nathan begins to describe it, the lights start coming on. And David has a choice. You see, for one long year, David was as miserable a man as you could find. In verse number 3, he described it perhaps best, my sin is ever before me. The thing about David is he made a very poor hypocrite. And when David would wake up in the morning, if he managed to get any sleep at all last night, the first thing David would think about is that horrible sin with Bathsheba all through the day. Oh, oh, as the king of Israel, there were a lot of occasions where you had to paint a smile on and you had to pretend and play the game of a hypocrite. But David wasn't good at it. Oh, he may have done it, but he didn't enjoy it. And all year long, he said, that's all I see. When I go to bed at night, I toss and turn. When I wake up in the morning, that's all I think about. Everywhere. I go, everywhere I look, my sin is constantly right in front of my face. Now the man of God has condemned David and his sin. What is David going to do? There are a lot of good people that look at David and it's, it's kind of an enigma, isn't it? And most people would say, well, you know, the story of Goliath and the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and the early stories of David are impeccable and the integrity is, is, is wonderful. And nobody has a problem with that. But you know, there's a lot of people that have a problem because they come to the end of David's life. And, and it's not when he was a young man. It's not when he's staring up in the sky saying, oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. But it is after David's life, at the end of David's life, where the Bible tells us he was a man after God's own heart. 
And there's a lot of people who have a problem. And say, what about that Bathsheba thing? But you know the difference between David and most people? Without question, David commits two of the greatest sins a human could commit. Without question, David covers it up and tries to hide his sin. And yet now when God has exposed his sin, David is going to do what very few humans will ever do. Because instead of saying, it's not that bad, let's just put it behind us. Instead of playing the games that human plays, when Nathan says, Thou art the man. There are no excuses. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Can you imagine that stunned silence again? And all of a sudden, it must have been like a bomb went off. And in that palace, people start adding one and one and they get the right answer. I got to tell you, can you just imagine the news media scrambling and scratching to be the first people out the door so they can get their report in? Can you imagine David's advisors emergency meeting in that conference room right now? I got to tell you, it must have been like a firebomb went off. Everybody is stirred and nobody knows what to do and everybody is angry and everybody is upset and it would only get worse. But while the news media does what the news media does and David's counselors and advisors do what politicians do, they're going to figure out how to spin it. You know what David does? He slips off into a little room. And for all the problems that are going to follow him now, he has to be the most relieved man in the whole kingdom because he doesn't have to play the game of a hypocrite anymore. And from my sin is ever before me in verse number 3. Go down to verse number 15 because an amazing thing happens now. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. You see, for one long year, David had no song to sing. Oh, for one long year, I suppose, had he been member of the choir, it was the time to sing. And he probably did what he had to do because it was a job. But for one long year, David had no song in his heart. For one long year, David had no desire to magnify and exalt the Lord. And might I say tonight that if somebody can sit in Fairhaven Baptist Church week after week after week, and look, you may not have the ability to sing pretty music like we've heard tonight, or the ability to join a choir and blend with them. You don't have to have a great singing voice tonight or an ability to play an instrument, but it shouldn't change the fact that whether you can or cannot sing in your heart, you want to exalt the Lord. And if there's somebody here tonight who says, it's been a long, long time since I have wanted to sing unto my Savior. There's something desperately wrong. And in Psalm song, we might say, number 51, David has finally come to that place where he's done with the cover-up. He's done with the hypocrisy. He slips off into a little room and, and with chaos swirling in every direction. Now the Bible tells us the man who said earlier, my sin is always before me. God opens up his heart and God opens up his lips. And now for the first time in a long time, David has a song to sing. And David is going to lift up his tongue and magnify his mighty God. The song has come back to David's heart. But not only does the song come back to David's heart, it is a song that is so powerful for you and me. And the song God gives him is Psalm 51. 
And perhaps like no other song that God allows David to sing, well, they certainly come from many emotional points in his life, and, and they certainly come from significant stories in his life. Some of them are great victories, and some are great defeats. Some are times of great joy, and some are times of great sorrow. But there really is no song quite like this song, because now David, after running for a year, after covering his sin for a year, after playing the game of a hypocrite for a long year, he has finally repented of his sin. And the song has returned, and what a song it is. We might call Psalm 51 the song of the soul set free. But Psalm 51 is a song that tells you and a song that tells me how we can get right with God when there is something between our soul and our Savior, when we have sinned against the Lord, when I know or you know that my heart is not right with God, when you know and I know we get on our knees and pray and it's a waste of time and prayer's not getting above the ceiling, when we understand that we're walking into our church and we're just flipping on the switch and we're playing Bible and playing Sunday school and playing choir or playing preach and we know it's an outward show and it's not real in the heart when you and I are willing to deal with our sin well if God could restore the joy in the song to David then God can restore the joy in the song to you and me and Psalm 51 with no excuses tells us how to deal with sin Could I show you please from Psalm 51 tonight the lessons that David learned if I will ever get right with God and if you will ever get right with God it starts when we see our sin from God's point of view. Notice in verse number 4 David cries out and sings against thee the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. May I stop and say the liberal seminary professors are highly offended at this verse. You know for the longest time I used to preach about liberal preachers. And when they had dawned on me, there are liberal preachers, no doubt about that. But there really aren't many, are there? Because if somebody actually preaches with passion and they invest their life in it, you really, you, with well, a few exceptions, but you don't invest your life with passion in something you don't believe. Do you know where most of the liberal attacks against the Bible come from? From liberal seminary classrooms. Almost every single one of them. And and for whatever the reason, these esteemed professors with the letters after their name who constantly attack the Word of God seem to get a pass on every side. So I just decided not with me for whatever it's worth. And the liberal cemetery, uh, uh, seminary professors, they come along and they are highly indignant. And they are extremely upset at verse number 4. And they listen to David sing against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And they say, how could David say that? How calloused is that? Why, you got a long laundry list here of the people who David sinned. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's family. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Uriah's family. He sinned against those other soldiers and their family and why he even sinned against his own family and yet he has the audacity to say against God alone but you see there's a big difference between David and the liberal seminary professors probably the biggest difference is David is saved and the others are not and as such David understands the Bible And when we understand our relationship with God and sin, well, when you sin or when I choose to sin, the truth of the matter is no matter who the object of our sin may be, no matter who it may be we have stolen, we have lied to, or whatever it might be, at the end of the day, our sin is against God and it is against God alone. Because it is not Bathsheba who said, thou shalt not murder. And it was not Uriah's family that said, thou shalt not commit the son of drunkenness. It is Almighty God who lays the groundwork. And it is 
is almighty God who lays the standard. And all of a sudden, in verse number 4, David's sin comes into an entirely different perspective. And when you and I begin to realize, it's not just my neighbor that I wronged, or it's not just somebody at school that I gave a hard time to. No, when we realize that our anger, when we realize our jealousy, when we realize our pride, when we realize those sins, they may be directed at another human, but at the end of the day, our sins are against God and God alone. And there is no other human who can forgive our sins and cleanse them away. Only God can do that. And that's the reason that we don't get to wake up one day and say, well, I shed a few, what my dad used to call crocodile tears. I said I was sorry. And then I said I was really, really, really sorry. So now I'm just going to wake up on Monday and decide to put it all behind me. Nope. We don't get to put our sin behind us. Only God can deal with our sins. And until we are ready to understand, no matter how little or big as we look at it, no matter who may have been the target, no matter what have I have done, when I have violated God's commands, this has become an issue first between me and heaven, first between God and me. And I will never be right with God until I understand that my sins have offended him, my sins have displeased him, my sins have gone against his holiness and his character. And it is God and God alone who will decide when I am or am not right with him. We won't get right until, number one, we see our sin from God's point of view. Would you notice number two? Song 51 tells us that if we desire to get right with God, hear me carefully, we have to know what God does not want. Go down, if you would, please, in Psalm 51 to verse number 16. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. In David's day, sacrifice and burnt offerings. Could we just substitute the word religion? And you know, nobody could bring a sacrifice like David. You read that in the Old Testament. Nobody, my, you want a long, you want miles of lambs to be sacrificed. David would be more than happy to provide. And if it was the matter of bringing enough lambs or bringing and enough bulls, if it was a matter of having a big enough altar, if it was a matter of just doing more, singing more, praising more, whatever it might be. David said, I can bring offerings like nobody else. I could bring sacrifices like nobody else. But did you see the word desire? It is exactly what God does not want. See, we've been trained. And it's not just some minister that trained us. Our own hearts have trained us. And we as humans have something internal that says when I have sinned and I am not right with God, the answer is religion. No, there's got to be a prayer to pray. Uh, can't I just walk into a booth and, and look at some human? Well, there's a curtain there, but, but can't I just tell that human what I've done? And can't that human tell me to pray a few prayers, put a few dollars in the box? Can't that human tell me that he absolves me? There's got to be something I can do. Can I get baptized? Can I go to church? How about this? How about this? How about if I go to a Baptist church and I walk down the aisle and cry at the altar? 
Will that fix it? And somehow we are convincing ourselves that there is a confession to confess, there is a prayer to pray, there is a church to join, there's an altar to come to, that there is something, and if I do this, I will impress God. If God sees me say this, if God sees me give this, if God sees me do this, there is an act of religion that I can do to get right with God. And that is precisely the wrong answer. It is exactly what God does not want. Because Sunday after Sunday, our country, our world is loaded with religion. And people think if I sing a few songs, if I wave my hands up in the air, if I go to a house of religion, if I do, if I give, if I pray, if I say, if I sing, there has got to be an act of religion that is going to impress God. And not only won't it work, worse, it is precisely what God does not want. Religion gets it wrong. There's David with his kingdom swirling. For the first time in a year, he can literally breathe. For the first time in a year, it's like the, the weight of the world has gone from his shoulders. And, and no doubt the tears are streaming down his face. And, and while everybody else is doing what everybody's going to do, there's David in that little room, David in that little office. It is David and his Lord. And, and David's crying and David's saying, for one year, my sin's before me. Now my song is back and here's what I've learned. One long, miserable, sorry, lousy year. What I have learned a year later is that God does not not want religion because my sin is between me and him. But notice number three. It is not just what God does not want. Number three, notice what God does want. And it really is stunning. In verse number six, every word here is powerful. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. What a word. I mean, don't you think that there should be a different word here, humanly speaking? Don't you think, don't I think tonight that, that when God is looking down at David and God is watching David make a mess of his life and a mess of his kingdom and God has watched David disgrace his testimony so that 3,000 years later we still know the story. Don't you think that right about now, after one year of phoniness, after one year of funerals, after one year of disaster, I mean, don't you think that God would be pointing his finger at David and the word we would read in verse number 6 is the word demand. That's not the word. Desire. What that means for one long year. There is God in heaven desiring David to want to get right with him. It is not God shaking a fist. It is not thunderbolts and lightning. It is one long year of a broken-hearted God whose arms are wide open, desiring. He wants David to get right with him. What is it that God wanted, not demanded? He desired truth. He said, David, I'm tired of your phoniness. I'm tired of your phony prayers. I'm tired of your phony songs. I am tired of your phony life. I am tired of your phony leadership. David, I want you to be honest. I don't want you to be the hypocrite. I want you to be true. God says more than anything else it is what I desire. And if that weren't enough, he said, I desire truth in the inward parts. Now, that sounds a little strange. But you understand, in Bible times, the way we talk about our heart, well, that's how they would talk about their bowels. So, as you and I would say, and I don't know if this is going to work on Valentine's Day, you know. Sweetheart, I love you with all my heart. I guess back then they would say, sweetheart, I love you with all my bowels. And there's probably somebody here 
It's going to get a card and make it say that. It's a fast ticket to the couch, man. Don't do it. But that's how they thought about it. Maybe could I clear it up or clean it up a little bit, so to speak. When he says he wants truth in the inward parts, the inward part, well, as we heard in a testimony this morning, it's your want to. In other words, put it together, and here's God saying, David, for one long year, my arms have been outstretched, my ears have been open. And David, I don't want your games, I don't want your sacrifices, I don't want your burnt offerings, I don't want more religion. But David, what I want, I want you to want to be right with me. He wanted David's want to to change. Truth in the inward parts. How about verse number 17? And maybe this reason, for one simple reason alone, this verse will tell us why very few humans will ever get right with God. Here it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. What do you need to get right with God? Come on, it's right there in the Bible. A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. There it is. You know why very few people will ever get right with God? Because you can't get right with God until you have a broken heart. And folks, we live in a world that says the worst thing you can have is a broken heart. So if you have a broken heart, sing happy music. If you have a broken heart, go to the doctor and get a pill. Because our world says the worst thing you can have is a broken heart. And when God is trying to break hearts, we're taking prescriptions and pills and programs, visiting psychiatrists and psychologists that tell us not to have broken hearts. And until there is a broken heart, someone won't get right with God. Stunning, isn't it? Exactly what religion says we need, God says that's not what you need. Exactly what the experts say we need for the guilt that fills a human heart is precisely what God says you don't need. It's the opposite. God says, I'm not looking for religion. I'm not looking for prayers. I'm not looking for money. But he says, what I am looking for is your want to to change. I'm looking for you to get sick and tired of being a hypocrite. And now God says, what I want you to do is to let your heart be broken. Let your heart be contrite, meaning crushed. Exactly what we think we're not supposed to do is the recipe to getting right with God. No wonder very few humans will ever truly repent. Sitting in that little office, the load of the world is off his shoulders. And David says, I realize what God does not want. I realize what God does want. But notice David had to take personal responsibility. In verse number 3, this is just one verse we could pick virtually many others in this psalm. Listen to the words, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If you're counting in verse 1, 2, and 3, there are 10 personal pronouns. And when David uses the word acknowledge, he said, I am admitting, I am confessing. I say that what God says about my sin is true. And why you start in verse number 1 and David leaves absolutely no doubt. By the time you get done verse number 3, David has said, I have done it. It is my fault. It is my responsibility. This is not Bathsheba. This is not Joab. This is not Uriah. This is not the pressures of being the king. No, sir, I have sinned against the Lord because I chose to sin against the Lord. And before a human can ever get right with God, the blame game has got to stop. 
doesn't matter who your neighbor is, doesn't matter how mean your boss is, it doesn't matter how nasty your teacher is at school, it doesn't matter who any, it doesn't matter who's the governor, it doesn't matter who's the president, it doesn't matter who anybody is. When you sin, you sin for the same reason that I sin when I sin, and that is because we choose to. It is our responsibility, it is our blame. In fact, if you count, Psalm 51 has 343 words. And do you know the word you will not read not one time? You never read the word, but. It's not there. Well, yeah, 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 but. It's not there. 343 words. I did it. I am responsible. I am guilty. David said, I learned this is an issue not between me and humans, between me and God. David said, I learned the hard way for one long year precisely what God did not want. Now David says, but I see what he does want. He wants not gifts and money and offerings. He wants my want to to change. And now David realizes I'm responsible and I'm guilty. David takes personal responsibility for his sin. And then David allows God to do what only God can do. Would you go down to verse number 7? And from verse 7 to verse number 12, David is going to make 11 requests of God. The thing that ties these 11 verbs together is that each one of them, David is asking God to do something that David cannot do himself. David says, I know what I have to do. I've got to quit playing the game. I've got my change my want to. I have got to take responsibility for my sin. And now you come to verse 7 and David's going to sound like a pathetic little child. He sounds so weak and he sounds so helpless. He's going to ask God to do 11 things. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the wounds which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Now David throws himself on the mercies of his God because David said what I have to do is quit playing the game. Take the blame for my sin. And now like a helpless little child, he says, Lord, there's some things that only you can do. You're going to have to purge me. The waters of baptism aren't going to cleanse me. Oh, Lord, you're going to have to blot out my transgressions. Joining a church won't do that. Lord, you're going to have to do what only you can do. You're going to have to take this dirty, wicked, vile heart and make it clean. Lord, only you can take this miserable man who's been so sorry and so wicked for a year. Only you can restore the joy of salvation. And that is exactly what the Lord did. It was God who washed him and God who cleansed him and God who purged him and God who created a new heart. It was God that gave him a right spirit and it was a God who restored the joy of his salvation. And what do you know in verse number 9 of these 11, here's my favorite, it was God who blotted out all of his iniquities. You know, I believe there are 20 things that God does with our sins when we get saved. Throws them behind his back as far as the east is from the west. You get the idea. But I just think this is my favorite one. I don't know why for sure, but I just love that word blot. Because, you know, when the Bible tells us we come to him and he blots out our sins, we kind of as Americans imagine the old-fashioned ink blotter. And, you know, in olden days, well, well, they used to take that blotter, you know, just kind of make a big mess on a piece of paper, and, and the ink would cover the mistake. And that's what blot means to us. 
Of course, the ink blotter was replaced by typewriters and that beautiful thing called whiteout. But you know, even whiteout really didn't work because you could always take a nickel and wipe it away and you could still see it. And, and, and then, of course, it was replaced by computers and, and a beautiful thing called the delete button. But you know, a computer expert will say that you can push a delete button, but it's still there on the hard drive. And that's the thing, isn't it? It blotting it over just meant to cover it. You could hold it up to the light and see it. Or it blotted over meant to put the white out in there. You could still scrape it away. Or it blotted out meant to push the delete key. You could still open the hard drive and find it. But in the Old Testament, the word blot had a different meaning. You see, when somebody was writing, it was normally on an animal skin. It could have been a leaf if it wasn't an important paper. And yet those animal skins were incredibly expensive. It's why when you see pictures of writing from 2,000 years ago, they fill up every crevice. They write very small. It's just because the the writing material was so expensive and rare. And, And when somebody was writing, if they made a mistake, I mean, you're talking about an expensive mistake. So in Bible times, blot didn't mean that you take ink and cover it up and make a mess out of it. But the word blot in the Old Testament meant you took a sponge and you'd kind of wet it a bit and and you'd wash that mistake away until the mistake was gone and you let it dry. You know, the Bible says that when God blots out our sins, no, 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 he doesn't just cover them up, but he says, if I ever get mad, I'll just put it up to the light and I'll remember what you've done. And it's not like God wipes it out, but he could always scrape it away. Or it's not even like he's got it on a heavenly computer and he pushes the delete key, but the expert up there could find it again. Oh, no. No, when God blots out our sins, he takes the sponge full of the blood of Christ and he washes our sins away. And by the time he's done blotting out our sins, there is not a blotch and there is not something. They are, well, G-O-N-E gone. Our sins are gone. And David said, when I threw myself at the mercies of my God, I did what I did. I took the blame and the responsibility and the guilt. I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. I have done it. And now at the feet of his Savior, he says, no more religion, no more hypocrisies. I am going to come with a broken and a contrite heart. And David throws himself on the mercies of his God. And well, by the time we're done, the chief musician's got a brand new song to sing. 3,000 years later, you and I have a new song. A song of a man who once had broken the heart of God, who spent one long year away from him. And yet now David, who will still pay the consequences of his sin, knows that God has put away thy sin. David is right with God. Psalm 51 is in the Bible. So you and I don't have to keep living the life of a hypocrite. So we don't have to keep playing church and playing Bible and playing religion so that you and I don't have to sound like we're right with God. It's here so you and I can be right with God. We can sing about revival, pray about revival, preach about revival. But there will never be revival until Psalm 51 is real in our lives. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. 
be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the Word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the Word and hearing the Word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to The Baptist Pulpit.